Hello and welcome to Storehouse 7 Ministries with me, Chris Wicklands. Just want to say a big thank you to all those that wrote in, emailed to me um, uh, from last episode where I was saying, hey guys, is there anyone really actually listening to this, enjoying this? And there, there's quite a lot of people that are listening to it. And so I appreciated that encouragement. So I will, shall continue to the end. Uh, this is also being made into a book series, a three book series. So it looks like I'm going to be spending, I don't know, the next five years <laughs> in Revelation. Okay, so we now come to the destruction of Babylon. Now, this is such an important theme that it actually takes up two whole chapters of the book of Revelation, both 17 and 18. And it's here that many different commentators go in wildly different directions. Many are not exactly sure what or where Babylon is. So some would say it's a literal destruction of literal Babylon in Iran and Iraq, which is where I tend to lean towards. Others state it's Rome. Uh, now, there's, there's a reasonable amount of evidence to support this, but mostly <clears throat> some of it is a throwback to the Reformation from 500 years ago, where it was seen that the Pope was the Antichrist and Rome was spiritual Babylon. But this is really an unfair characterization and is prejudiced at best against the Catholic Church because the Pope then and now doesn't go around chopping off people's heads who don't receive the mark of the beast. Also seeing as Revelation chapter 12 teaches us that Satan will persecute both Jews and Christians and that the Catholic Church contains one billion people of which many claim to be Christian, it makes no logical sense to slay one's own congregational members. <laughs> um, the other interpretation of Babylon is that it is a spiritual Babylon, i.e. could be the current EU or even some say America. Now hopefully as we work through the next two chapters of Revelation we can clear up the ideas of Babylon that don't logically make sense from those that possibly do. So Revelation 17 verse 1, <clears throat> Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, Come here and I will show you in and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. As you're probably aware, I've mentioned on multiple occasions that the angels operate in a priestly function in heaven. They offer incense and prayers before God and assist in the functions of the heavenly tabernacle. The seven angels who pour out God's wrath upon the earth are not just random angels pouring out bowls of wrath here and there. Rather, these angels are operating in the context of a priestly function on behalf of God the Father through Jesus, the high priest of heaven. The work of these seven angels is not cruel or vindictive. Rather, they are operating on a holy and priestly work on behalf of God. And we see, we see a type of this in the book of Exodus with Moses and Aaron. Aaron was Moses' spokesperson. Exodus 7, 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron will be your prophet. Moses and Aaron operated in the heavenly type at the outpouring of God's judgment upon Egypt. Moses was like God the Father and Aaron like Jesus the High Priest. Let's not forget that Aaron did actually become the High Priest once the tabernacle was erected. It needs to be noted that the outpouring of God's wrath is a holy work of God. It is not uh, cruel and random, and it requires a whole consort of commands from the Father through the High Priest executed through the priestly function of the angels. Now, some may dispute this priestly function of angels, citing that we, not angels, are the priesthood. Yes, indeed, we are now priests unto God, but we didn't come into the fullness of that function until after 
the resurrection of the dead, i.e. when Jesus rose from the dead. Revelation 1.6, and he has made us to be a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Revelation 5.10, you have made them to be a kingdom and priests unto our God, and they will reign upon the earth. Mark 12.25, when the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like angels in heaven. So notice at the resurrection, we become a kingdom of priests and become just like the angels. In what way? In our priestly functions. So we we indeed come now into our priests. We, we are now priests unto God. And as I said, we don't come into the fullness of that function until firstly after the resurrection of Christ. So now already we are operating in a function of that priesthood, but we don't come into the fullness of it until the resurrection of the dead um, or we go straight to glory. Now, let's also not forget that the Mosaic tabernacle was a shadow and type of an already pre-existent reality in heaven, i.e. there already was a true tabernacle and ark in heaven. There already was an eternal high priest. There already was an order of tabernacle worship with a priesthood system, etc., etc. Again, some may note that angels are also warriors, so how does that fit? Well, simple, the Levites were instructed in warfare to protect the tabernacle and later the temple and became known as the temple guard. So Levites had to had work to do in the temple and assisted with its protection, just as the angels do now and have always done. So Revelation 17.1, then one of the seven angels who had the, the seven bowls came and spoke with me saying, come here and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. Now here the angel speaks to John and invites him to come and see the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. We're now going to come to a lot of symbolism, which if we're not careful, will lead us to error in our thinking and conclusions. For example, the whore of Babylon sits on seven mountains. Most people assume this is therefore Rome, and thus the Catholic Church, and go off into all crazy kinds of ideas based on a single concept, except, and this is the problem, except that in verse 10 it states that the seven mountains represent seven kings, not a geographical location. I'll say again, uh, in verse 10 it states that the seven mountains represent seven kings, not a geographical location. So please, please take care to let scripture interpret itself. Don't interpolate scripture uh, lest you end up in error and causing harm to other denominations, needlessly so. So, for example, here in verse 1, it states that the great harlot sits upon many waters. Well, what does this mean? Well, we find the answer in verse 15. And he said to me, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. So being a beast upon many waters shows her governance, influence and commerce over the nations and less to do with geographical locations. Revelation 17.2 With whom the kings of the earth committed acts of immorality and those who dwell on the earth were made drunk with the wine of her immorality. The language used here is obviously of a sexual nature, hence the term whore of Babylon. So the question needs to be asked, what are the nations doing with the whore of Babylon to be accused of such immoralities and fornications? 
Well, we can see this kind of language being used of Israel in the past when she whored herself out to all the nations and played the harlot against her covenant husband, God Almighty. For an example of this, see Ezekiel chapter 16. Firstly, we do not need to consider and concede uh, that the whore of Babylon is a great mystery. Sorry, I'll say that again. I can't even read my own writing. It's like early in the morning here. Firstly, we do need to consider and concede that the whore of Babylon is a great mystery um, because verse 7 of Revelation 17 tells us so. So when we look at these things, we do need to bear in mind that if the scripture says to us, hey, guys, this is a mystery, then it is a mystery. Okay, it amazes me how that when thing <laughs> when scripture says these are mysteries and, and like people are trying to like figure it out. Now, you know, we do have to take the time to try and figure things out, but you should still come to the conclusion that it's a mystery. You know, the Holy Trinity, that that is a mystery. We can kind of fathom it. We can kind of get the concept of it, but it is a mystery. So Bab the whore of Babylon is a system, a spiritual religious system and a financial system and does have a geographical location. We'll explore this later in this commentary. So the nations are following this system with their political power, with money, economics and committing fornication against God by submitting to the worship system of the beast. Verse three, and he, that's the angel, carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast full of blasphemous names having seven heads and ten horns. The first point of interest in this verse is that John is carried away into a wilderness and this links to several other verses in Revelation. For example in Revelation 12 6 the woman, which is representative of Mary and Israel, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God so that there she would be nourished for 1260 days. Uh, in Revelation 12:14, it says, but the two wings of the great eagle were given to the woman so that she could fly into the wilderness to her place where she was nourished for a time, times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. So no one is entirely sure if this wilderness is some spiritual plane of understanding pertaining to a meaning in the vision or if it's a place literally in the wilderness as when Israel escaped Egypt in the Exodus story. I suspect personally that the wilderness riddle is both a spiritual metaphor and a literal place. And this gives us possibly a very subtle hint that the beast and the whore who rides it may well come out of obscurity but from the Middle East. This beast which the whore rides is none other than the Antichrist system. And for more information on this, go back to the first beast in Revelation chapter 13, verses 1 to 10. The beast she is sat upon is scarlet. Now, why scarlet? Again, when you see these descriptions, you must ask all the right questions to get all the right answers. So this kind of links to Isaiah chapter 1 verse 18 and it says come now and let us reason together says the Lord though your sins be as scarlet they will be as white as snow though they are red like crimson they will be like wool the colors scarlet and crimson which look like blood are metaphors for sin the antichrist is the son of perdition the lawless one the man of sin the blasphemous names upon the beast would likely indicate the self-appointed titles of his own glory over that of the one true God 
The seven heads and ten horns we've already looked at in Revelation 13, one uh, verses 1 to 10, and we'll have a further look at that when we get to it in verses 9 to 10 of this current chapter. Uh, Revelation 17, verse 4. The woman was clothed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a gold cup full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. I think the reference here to being clothed in purple and scarlet is really a blasphemy against Jesus. For example, Luke 23, 11 states that the Romans clothed Jesus in a gorgeous robe. Matthew 27, 28 states it was a scarlet robe. And here the whore is trying to see herself as royalty and divine when in actual fact she is neither. She is a whore. She also rides the beast, which denotes a permissive act from a savage beast, which will in the end devour her. Verse 16 is clear. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and make her desolate and naked, and will tear her flesh and burn her with fire. So the picture of the whore riding the beast that shows that she has slowly come to power and greatness, or not necessarily slowly, but more slyly. Uh, one would could say this whole Jezebel concept would be at play here, uh, that she's come to power and greatness through riding or working the beast system to her own advantage by whoring herself out to the nations and using a Jezebel influence over the world. This assuming and undermining of others' political power will in the end be her own undoing. As I'd already said, uh, if I just quickly find it from verse 16, where it says, And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot, and will make her desolate and naked and will tear her flesh and burn her with fire. It needs to be made clear that the whore of Babylon comes to uh, prominence by riding the beast system. Now, I doubt this was something the beast system planned for or wanted, hence why the beast she rides eventually devours her. This whore held a golden chalice full of abominations and of the unclean things of her immorality. Now we understand that part of the wine she was drinking is from, uh, is from what it says in verse 6, which states, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the witnesses of Jesus. Now it seems that the golden cup which was full comprises of terrible abominations against God and his people. Her immorality will be, as already discussed, her lewdness, and fornication with the beast system instead of giving praise and worship to God. Anyway, I'll end it there because we got this. This is, is this uh, chapter is actually going to be quite fascinating, and the things that we're going to learn about the whore of Babylon and various other things. It really is quite interesting, and hopefully, as we really go deep into these next two chapters, it will really unlock a lot. Well, not all of them, but certainly some of these mysteries of Babylon, so that we can understand things. Ironically, in understanding some of these concepts will help us understand the concepts of our own faith as well, and how the whore of Babylon is a perversion of some of these things. So we've got more, lots, lots, lots more to cover. So until next time, God bless you all, and uh, keep strong in the faith. Amen. Amen.